0: Amen. Hey, would y'all do me a favor? This worship team, our people in the back, our choir for everything that they do so hard and they give of themselves so much. Can we just give God the glory one more time for, for everything that they do? It is, it is amazing. I thank you guys for giving me the privilege to be able to worship, and um, just really set my heart in the right place to be able to preach the word of God, this morning. And I hope that it sets your heart in the right place to be able to receive. The word of God. So today we're going to meet someone new in the creation story. The first man, his name is Adam, and uh, we're really excited about this message. Uh, I wanted to start out by just re-emphasizing something that we talked a lot about last Sunday, and and it, we talked about the six days of creation and and why the meaning of the word day is so significant because some people have tried to interpret the word day. As meaning maybe a long period of time or vast ages of time, and they try to, you know um, reconcile millions of years with the biblical count of, of creation. But I just want to remind you this morning that God, in his infinite wisdom and I think God also has a, a wonderful sense of humor he, he knew that this was going to be a, an issue of debate in our day. He knew that Darwin's theory of evolution would would emerge and scientists would begin to embrace that and it would even creep into the church and many church members and Christians would begin to try to reconcile millions of years and vast ages of time with um, the biblical count of creation. And so when we think about the word day, the Hebrew word day, I think God was very clear in how he wanted to communicate the meaning of the word day in these six days of creation. Let me give you an example. Whenever the word day, which is the Hebrew word yom, whenever it is met with a qualifier, okay, let me give you an example. Whenever the word day is met with or combined with a qualifier such as evening and morning, it always means an ordinary day. Whenever the word yom is, is, is combined with a qualifier like a number, like he went to town for one day. Well, we would understand that to mean a literal, normal, to emphasize a day. And so when you read the biblical account, I think God wanted to emphasize, as a matter of fact, I think he wanted to overemphasize that this day would come when we would be challenged with the authority of Scripture by the scientific community. And so therefore, think about how he communicated the biblical week of creation to us. He said there was evening and there was morning the first day. There was evening and there was morning the... Second day. There was evening and morning the third day. He is making it crystal clear to us how to interpret the six days of creation. And this is what's so fascinating to me. It's interesting to me that whenever that word day is challenged by some theologians and by by skeptics of the Bible, they always challenge it in the book of Genesis. But isn't it interesting that they never challenge that word anywhere else in Scripture? Like like Joshua marched around the city of Jericho for seven million years. Well, we know that Joshua marched around the city of Jericho in seven days. But why don't they challenge the meaning of the word day in that context but yet they want to challenge the meaning of the word in Genesis and the reason is, is because again there is an attack on the authority of Scripture and Genesis completely destroys and does not allow for any vast ages of time. And that's why it's such an important issue. And so we know that the word, the meaning of the word day is very plain, very specific. Now, to, to take it a step further, we, we understood last week that even Jesus himself made it clear when Adam and Eve were created in Mark chapter 10 verse 6 Jesus said that he made them from the beginning of creation God made them male and female and so Jesus puts the the creation of man the formation of man he puts it at the beginning at the beginning of creation and again, that does not allow for some type of evolutionary model that allows for millions or not billions of years where Adam and Eve, and when you see the real of something, of natural processes. And God did this on purpose, and when you see the reliability, the reliability and the integrity of the scriptures, we understand that the Bible's case, in my opinion, again, there, there, there's people that, that, that can debate this and will continue to question it, but in my opinion, it's an open and shut case. That we're dealing with a literal historical account of creation. And we know that these are six literal 24-hour days as prescribed by the Bible. And we understand that Adam and Eve were created on the sixth day at the beginning of creation. Now what you will find and what we're going to discuss today... What I just shared with you. Many people, in order to kind of reconcile this, because if you're honest with yourself, you understand what I just shared with you. You understand there's really no way around it. So, in order to reconcile it, some people have taken this approach. Maybe Adam and Eve and the serpent in the garden, Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Maybe this is just one big poetic, symbolic story that isn't really talking about historical figures. But it was kind of God's way to give us an idea of how he may or may not have created and what really happened in the beginning. But we don't really need to take this literally. We don't really need to take this historically. And I'm going to challenge that this morning because going on in here today and you think that, that now listen, let me, let me back up and say this. There are some symbolic things going on in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Uh, undoubtedly, we can interpret Scripture and, and pull out the, the symbolism and the the, uh, the metaphors and the similes and those kind of things. We should always interpret Scripture in context, but I'm going to contend with you this morning that Adam and Eve are real historical figures that God wants us to to interpret that way. And that it matters that we interpret them this way. And so is Genesis literal history? Well let's take a look at what the Bible says this morning. Is at, are Adam and Eve literally, historically our first parents? Well let's take a look together. Let's see what we got here. Oh that somehow went dark on me. There we go. And it's back white. Nope, went dark again. All right. Well, let me back up, guys. I'm sorry for some technical difficulties. I'm not sure what's going on there. All right, in your, in your bulletin, you can, you can actually look in your bulletin. You can follow along with, with the notes in your, in your, uh, in your uh, bulletin this morning. Number one, what I want to share with you is that the Bible says that man is the unique crowning glory of God's creation. Man is the unique, he is unique as the crowning glory of God's creation. Let's, let's turn to Genesis 1 this morning. Let's jump in at verse 26 and 27. as we're, Here we are on day 6. And look at what it says in Genesis 1, Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, in Psalm uh, 8, in the eighth Psalm, the Bible kind of reiterates this idea that even though man was made a little lower than the heavenly beings, even though man was made a little lower than the angels, okay, he, we, we have physical uh, bodies and we're here on the earth in this physical world and so there is a little bit of a distinction between man and the spiritual beings that God had already previously made. We, we, we studied about that a few weeks ago. However, it says yet God has crowned him with glory and with honor. In other words, when God created man on the sixth day, it was the pinnacle of creation. Now, the problem with that is, is that when we begin looking at evolutionary theory, evolution teaches the exact opposite. Evolution teaches that we have been progressively improving and advancing into some higher state of development over hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of years. And so from an evolutionary perspective, let's see if I can find my oh, we, we lost the slides. That's okay. From an evolutionary perspective, we are nothing more than a high alt, and even a an or a primate. Now we have to understand that's what's being taught and even in some churches they've accepted this idea that perhaps there, that's, that's what I wanted to show you here. You've seen this picture, I don't know how many times it's plastered up everywhere that you can see, every uh, public school textbooks are going to have this picture because this is the idea that there's been this monkey to man evolution and it is the direct, the direct opposite of God creating man as the perfection of creation, creating him as the crowning glory of creation. And so therefore, we're supposed to believe that mankind today is smarter and more highly evolved than man was in the past. Now I have a big problem with that. Now let's look around our world today, just a general, just, just as look around where we are. The state of our world today, are we, are we really that much smarter than we used to be? Are we we that much more moral than we used to be? Do we really know how to apply knowledge and wisdom than our forefathers and the generations before us were able to do? Look, do we even know how to plant a garden anymore? Think about that. I mean, there's just little bitty simple things, little bitty simple... um, pieces of knowledge and information and wisdom and things that that have been passed on from generation to generation that we have lost or are in the process of losing, and yet we're supposed to believe today that mankind is more brilliant, more intelligent, more sophisticated, more evolved, if if you will, than we were millions of years ago or perhaps even hundreds of thousands of years ago. And that's why we get this picture of what we call cavemen. History books and from school. Open up your kids' biology books, people. Open up your children's history books and from school. You're going to find teachings and chapters in there about our predecessors called cavemen, Neanderthal, Cro-Magnon man, all of these supposedly ape-like humanoids, hominids, whatever you want to call them, and that we have evolved from these lesser species. The problem with that is is that we actually have some scientific discovery now, we can actually test genes and DNA and what we've discovered and what most people will never tell you is that Neanderthal and quote unquote cavemen or Cro-Magnon man or whatever they want to put labels on, listen, you know what these were? They were human beings. They had the same genetic traits as human beings, they interbred like human beings, they had burials and rituals. And worship and social structures, so, social structures, and artwork and tools, and all of these other things that we see in every other human race and civilization. And at the end of the day, these are not some inferior race of humanoids, but these are actually human beings. That's what they have been all along. Now, let's talk genetics for just a second because what's amazing to me is that if you begin to study genetics, you begin to understand that science is scientists around the world are cringing today because you know what they're finally having to admit? Is that human beings have descended from the same what? Two people. A man and a woman. Now they won't call them Adam and Eve. But listen to this report. A new study revealed that all humans are descendants of the same man and woman who lived less than 100,000 years ago, which is, that's their number. Now I don't believe it, but that's their number. Now listen to this, our communal mom and dad got together after a catastrophic event almost wiped out the human race. Wow, what wisdom and knowledge. All they had to do was open up their Bible and read about the global flood. How there was a catastrophic event about 4,000 years ago and all of a sudden we came from the same two parents, which at that time was Noah and his wife and uh, his three sons and their daughters excuse me, and their wives, but we know that it also traces us back to Adam and Eve at the beginning. And so what scientists are just now trying to figure out and that they're willing to admit is what we've known all along. They also found that almost 9 out of 10 animals came from the same origin of creatures. Interesting. So there's very low genetic diversity and variations within the species. This is coming out of Rockefeller University and the University of Basel, which is in Switzerland. Now listen to Dr. Thaler. Dr. Thaler was one of the scientists, the geneticists that was doing this study. Listen to what he said. This conclusion is very surprising. And I fought against it as hard as I could. They're fighting against the data, they're fighting against the science because they know that if they begin to embrace what the science is really teaching, that we have not evolved randomly over millions of years, that our ancestors are actually very recent, and that we all have descended from the same two parents, all of a sudden they're beginning to sound like the Bible. And God forbid they could ever embrace something like biblical creation. As I was reading a little bit more about this research, and you can go look at the the study itself, Rockefeller University. I started reading some uh, commentary from other scientists who have seen the data, and you know what their conclusion is? Well, you know, if we didn't evolve like we once thought we did, then it had to be the aliens, the aliens had to come around about 100,000 years ago, and they were the ones who really kind of started the human race on this track that we're on today. You see, it's, it's, it's not enough just to simply say it's got to be the Bible. The Bible could possibly ch- be true. No, they have to come up with any other alternative, even if it means extraterrestrials were the ones. matter of fact, if you, if you find out about the discovery of DNA by Watson and Crick... In 1953, when they first discovered the the structure of DNA and the complexity of life in the DNA double helix, you know what? They also had to come to the conclusion that it was the aliens. That's what they believed. Because there's no way we can believe in an almighty creator God. Maybe it was just aliens that came and got everything started. But let's think about what the Bible teaches when it comes to Adam and Eve, when it comes to Adam being the creation of God. It says that Adam was a direct creation of God. And in the, in the gospel of Luke, he is called the son of God. Because he was created directly by God out of the what? Out of the dirt. He is formed by God out of the ground. And then it says that God breathed life into him. Now let me just tell you how my mind works. and This is how I picture it happening. We know that Jesus Christ, God the Son, is the image of the invisible God. We know that Adam and Eve were walking with the Lord in the what? In the garden. He would come and walk with them and talk with them. Well, in my understanding and interpretation, he, the Lord came in what kind of form? Physical form. So who was that? Jesus. I believe Jesus... This is, just, uh, this is not in the Bible. This is, this is Marcus's interpretation. I believe the Lord Jesus in physical form was on the earth on day six. And he began to mold and he began to make Adam out of the clay. And when he formed his physical body and the Holy Spirit breathed life into him, the first person that Adam saw when he opened up his eyes was Jesus. He saw a, a, an immediate reflection of God. Just in that moment, imagine that for just one second. This is what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that Adam is a direct creation from God and that God breathed life into him on day six and that he is not some evolutionary result of all of these natural processes that removes God from the equation. Adam was the pinnacle of God's creation. He was the crowning achievement of God's glory. There was nothing deficient in Adam. Let me, let me challenge you with some things right now. You see, if you're believing in, in evolutionary models, you're believing that Adam was some type of highly evolved ape or, you know, some type of a a primate or maybe he was, you know, the first homo sapien to walk the earth, but he had to be pretty dumb, right? He had to be kind of like a caveman. Isn't that the way the logic goes? That's the way I understand the logic goes, but what the Bible teaches was that Adam was in, was, there was nothing deficient in him. How much of our brain capacity do they think we can use today? Some say four or five, maybe at the most, what? Maybe eight to 10% of our brain. Adam, in my opinion, in my estimation, could use what? 100% of brain capacity. And he was, he was less evolved than we are. You see, Adam had full mental capacity, operating at 100% of brain function. He was supremely intelligent. He was a genius, to say the least. He was physically without flaw. Not one genetic defect or deficiency was in Adam's body. This means that his body operated at optimum physical capacity without wasting any energy. He probably never got tired. He was created to live how long? forever. He was immortal. He was designed never to die. He was pre-programmed by God with all the mental faculties and emotional capacities and moral capabilities to be just like God. He had the ability to communicate with God at the highest level. He had the ability to reason and exercise logic. And listen, he had the ability to create. He was brilliant as a direct creation in the image of God. Now, If you think about Charles Darwin's book that was released in 1859, I want to share with you the title of that book. Now, if you don't pay attention to the details, Darwin's book today, all around the world, is known as The Origin of the Species. you know that's not the title of the book? Can I read to you what the title of Darwin's book, his groundbreaking scientific book in 1859? Listen to the true title On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. That's the title of his book. Let me tell you what Darwin proposed in his book. He proposed that the dark skinned races were savages. And they were inferior to the lighter skinned races in humanity because the lighter skinned were more highly evolved. Again, if you're thinking about it from the perspective of if we came from apes or monkeys, then obviously if we're dark skinned like the apes and monkeys, then we're more like them. But us white skinned, lighter skinned people, hey, we've excelled and developed higher in the evolutionary process, and therefore we're what? We're better, we're superior. You don't think ideas have consequences? Guess what? People like Margaret Sanger, anybody know who she is? Anybody ever heard of Planned Parenthood? She is the founder of Planned Parenthood, which is responsible for the murder of millions of babies every single year. Guess what the guess what the foundation of her philosophy was? She she read Darwin, she loved Darwin, she knew Darwin's book was all about the favored races in this struggle for life. And so, Margaret Sanger said things like this. She called for abortion and birth control among the unfit to produce a master race, consisting solely of wealthy, educated white people. Sanger said she believed black people were human weeds that needed to be exterminated, She also referred to immigrants and African-Americans and poor people as reckless breeders spawning human beings who never should have been born. You ever stop to wonder why all the Planned Parenthood clinics are in minority neighborhoods? Anybody ever stop to think about that for a second? You ever see a Planned Parenthood in a nice white neighborhood? Just, Just a thought. Listen to what she said. The aboriginal Australian, the the natives there in Australia, are the lowest known species of the human family. This is Margaret Sanger. Just a step higher than the chimpanzee in brain development. In an effort to sell her birth control and abortion proposals to the black community, Sanger said, we do not want word to go out that we want to exterminate the Negro population. Guess who else bought into Darwin's idea of the superiority of the races? Adolf Hitler That's why he exterminated the lesser species of the human race in order to produce in other, look just think with it. All they're doing is they're accelerating natural selection. They're accelerating the survival of the fittest. It fits perfectly with the Darwinian world view. But if man is created in the image of God and created as the crowning glory of God's creation, it destroys any such ridiculous viewpoint or philosophy. Which leads to death. Which brings me to my second point. Is that man is distinct. As the image bearer. Of the creator. Man is distinct. As the image bearer of the creator. If you picked up on Genesis 1, you saw where it says, man, let us make man in our image, in the image of God, he created them. Now, let me give you a couple of ideas of what is it talking about when it says man is created in God's image. This is very, very important. And again, this is very fundamental and very relevant to our world today. When it comes to issues like abortion, when it comes to issues like euthanasia, Do you realize there are many societies and even right here in the United States of America are pushing euthanasia? In other words, if you're unfit and you can't produce and you're unproductive in society and you're an older person and you're maybe getting a little bit sick or whatever it may be, it's just it's really better for the rest of us if if you just go ahead and what? Just go ahead and die. We don't need you anymore. Because you're not part of the natural selection, you're not part of the survival of the fittest. Do you see what I'm saying? euthanasia is very much a a reality in our world today. But when it says we're made in the image of God, let me give you a couple of ideas about what this means. I do think that the Trinity is in view here. The Lord said, let us make man in our image. Now, I do think there's something going on there because, listen, we have a body, we're physical, we have a mind, personality, and we have a spirit, well, you can, I think, correlate that with God the Father, kind of the, the mind or the personality of the Godhead. You have Jesus who represents the what? The physical form or the body, and then you have the Holy Spirit. So I do think there's something there when it comes to the creation of man in God's image. But the reason that we hold on to this and why it's so very important is because every human being is unique and distinct from all of creation in that we carry the divine image of God. No other creature from Genesis 1, every other creature on the face of the earth was not given this status as the image bearer or what I call the divine imager of God. So what does that mean for us? That means that every single human being on the earth possesses inherent dignity. We possess value and worth as the God-given right to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Our forefathers in the United States of America understood this. That's why they believed in everyone having the right to life and liberty and happiness. Every person is worthy of love and respect and basic human rights because they are a reflection and a representation of God on the earth. What that means is that regardless of what you can do for somebody, you still have worth. You still are worthy to be loved and respected. You still have dignity because you are made as an image bearer of the creator. Regardless of your age, your gender, your class, your race, your social status, your intellectual capacity, your physical ability. I know many of you in here know somebody or maybe somebody in this room has raised a child who maybe was mentally deficient. Maybe they never could take care of themselves. From a purely naturalistic Darwinian perspective, that person is no no longer viable. Why even take care of them? They're just a waste. Why do we take care of them? Why do we love them and provide for them? Not because of how smart they, they are or are not. Because they're made, what? In God's image. They're image bearers of the one true living God. Do you know what's so amazing? Is if you're driving down the highway, and I do that a lot, and you see a dead animal on the side of the road, it's awful, right? I mean, roadkill is just terrible. How many, you, how many of you stop to check on the poor dead raccoon or the possum? Why? It's, it's an animal. I love animals. Even if it's a dog. How many of us stop and jump out of the car and and frantically call 911? Because there's a dead dog on the highway. Why not? Because we know in our heart and inherently that dog is not made in the image of God. But if we saw a human being laid over on the side of the highway, every single person in this room would what? We would stop. I sure hope you would. Because that's an individual. That's a person. That's someone that's made in the divine image of God. That in and of itself just proves to us that there's something different. There's something distinct when it comes to the way that men and women are set apart as divine imagers. So what does it really mean to be human? I mean, this is a huge debate in our culture today. What does it really mean to be made in the image of God? Let me give you a couple of examples and I think may be helpful for you. And ultimately, I'm going to give you one that I think may solidify what it really means. Okay, I'm going to give you four. Just listen real fast. We're going to cover these quickly. Number one, the image of God could mean that we are reflections of God. I see some of that. Okay, what does that mean? It means that we kind of we reflect the, the physical and spiritual properties, the characteristics of God. Uh, it means that we're, we're, we're made to be oriented toward God. We're made to, to, to reflect Him. In other words, if we turn our lives toward God, then we can receive His love and His light and turn around and be a reflection of God. I think that's part of what it means to be an image bearer of God. Number two, it means that we're, we're the counterparts of the living God. Listen, God has a unique relationship with, with mankind. We're going to see more of that we're going to see more about that in just a minute. Only mankind can relate to God in this way. So we have this unique relationship that no other creature has with God. Number 3, we share in the divine authority with God. In other words, when it, when God made man in his image, he said, "I'm making you to have dominion. I'm making you to go and rule and to reign" On the earth, just as it is in heaven. So God uniquely called mankind to be his authority on the earth. To have dominion, to have the status of a ruler on the earth. And the last one is this. The image of God could mean that we are his representation. We represent God. There's no other creature that God has ever made that is, de- that is designed to represent God on the earth as imagers of his divine nature. And it ministers of the divine will. Now, why is that important? Why does it matter that we know what is human? Let Let me just give you a brief illustration. A baby in the mother's womb at conception. At conception, that child is human. That child is alive. That child is made in the image of God, but yet it hasn't had a brain function yet. It doesn't have the ability to communicate yet. It doesn't have all the attributes that we think of as humans, that that when we get older and we grow up, we can share in the attributes of God. But that little child is still precious and is still worthy of life and protection. Why? Let me give you a, a simple illustration. Every child that is conceived in the womb has been stamped by God Jesus called his disciples he was challenged about taxes bring me a coin whose image is stamped on the coin Caesar what did Jesus say give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar but what give to God what belongs to God what he was saying to his disciples is you are the image bearers of God therefore God has what stamped his image on you as human beings. Therefore, that which belongs to God should be given to God. So whether you're a child in the mother's womb or you're a mentally retarded adult child that's been taken care of by your family your whole life or whether you're old or young, whatever you are, you've been what? Stamped. You are different. And therefore, you're worthy to be loved and cherished as an image bearer of God. That leads me to my third point. Man represents the created order fixed in nature from the beginning. Did you pick up on this in Genesis 1? Listen to what it says. I love how Genesis just tackles all these difficult issues on the very first chapter. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. Hmm. He created them. Do you know that there's a created order in nature? Did you know this? Let's talk sex. There is a created order that God has established in nature there are natural laws of sexuality and reproduction and procreation that God has established in nature they are enormous they have enormous relevance in our culture today because people are trying to push a perverse indoctrination of the masses that is telling a lie to you and to your children about sexuality and gender. The Bible says from the beginning God created mankind male and female that is a biological Reality. Amen. Now let's think about this for a second. Your kids are being taught this in sex education classes all around the country. That's why Facebook has up to 71 different genders that you can select from. 71, at least last time I checked. But that's the whole thing. This thing's supposed to be fluid so it can come and go, and there can be a, a lot of different other genders. But this is called the gender spectrum. And this is what children are being taught, little bitty children, even at elementary level. Let me give you one example that says this. There's a spectrum of genders and it says, our sexuality and gender identity aren't set in stone. Lie number one. In fact, people's identities can be fluid. Lie number two. Because our identity doesn't have anything to do with our body parts, people. It has nothing to do with your sexual body parts. Identity. Is meant to be in Christ. Identity is meant to be in Jesus Christ. Lie number three. The spectrum can help you visualize how you feel at any given time. So it's not fact, it's what? Feeling. Mark how your identity is today, but don't feel limited. It's okay to mark something different tomorrow, because it might change. You see, guys, there's a lie being told to us and our children today that gender is fluid, that gender is somehow the way that you feel. It's a feeling. It's an emotion. Children are being taught this. And what's even Worse is that parents are allowed to abuse their young children and they're giving them, they're giving them hormone replacement therapy treatments before they have ever even entered puberty. That 6 and 7 and 8 and 9 and 10 and 11 and 12 year olds that parents are taking them and changing their hormones before they've ever even reached puberty and you're telling me that a 6 or 11 or a 12 year old even knows anything about sexuality? And you're going to go and mess them up in that way? Some of this stuff is irreversible. That is abuse, people. This is the culture that we're living in. This is a lie. There are not 71 genders. There's two. This is a biological fact. Do you know that I could come around here and draw blood from everybody, single person in this room, and never even know if you're a man or a woman, run it through a lab, and I could tell you immediately if you're what? What? A It doesn't have anything to do with the way you look because it's a genetic difference in the created order that God has given us. Back up into 2013, transgender, gender identity disorder was considered by the American Psychiatric Association as a clinically diagnosed mental disorder, not unlike schizophrenia. Guys, that was less than seven years ago. That if a child came home as a boy telling his parents that he feels like he's a girl, they would take him to a mental hospital and have them evaluated because it's a mental disorder. We're not being loving and supportive if we try to tell our kids that we encourage mental disorders. Totally disregarding the word of God. Now, don't take my word for it. Take Dr. James McHugh's word for it. He is one of the leading scientists, doctors at Johns Hopkins University. Listen to what he said. Transgendered men do not become women, nor do transgendered women become men. All of them, including Bruce Jenner, this is his quote, Become feminized men or masculized women, counterfeits or imposters of sex with which they identify. In that lies their problematic future. Listen to what he says. We psychiatrists would do better to concentrate on trying to fix their minds and not their genitalia. We have wasted scientific technical resources and damaged our professional credibility by collaborating with madness rather than trying to study, cure, and ultimately prevent it. That comes from James McHugh, doctor at Johns Hopkins University. He sees through the madness. He hadn't bought into the political correctness. There are tremendous genetic differences in men and women. There are only two sexes. Now let me tell you why it matters. There is a created order that God has established in nature. And there's three simple ways that that created order plays out in our life. The first one is in procreation and marriage. God made man first and he made woman from man and he placed her under his loving care. That's why when you see a picture like this, this is the the order that that our families are supposed to operate. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He's the head of the family. The husband is to take care of the wife. The wife is to be underneath the husband's authority. And so on, and here comes the children. In the family, this is the way that it works. In the church, this is the way that it works. And it even works this way in God's idea of government. Okay? Now, you may or may not understand that if... The beginning of creation was not Adam and Eve. Maybe it was Adam and Steve. We would not be here. I hate to state the obvious. The reason God didn't create two men at the beginning is because there would be no way for them to what? Reproduce. It is a very logical thing that we've completely corrupted and perverted. There is a created order in nature and God wants to see us function in that way in life. There's a created order in the family and there's a created order in the picture of the gospel itself. I need to move on. Man is the special object of God's affection and primary focus of God's redemption. This is what's so amazing about mankind is that when we look at passages like Hebrews chapter 2 we see that man has a special place in God's plan of redemption. You see Jesus became a what he became a man Jesus became a man God became a man so that he might save mankind in Hebrews chapter 2 listen to what it says it says he bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering He said, that's why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, because surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. You see, God came to save man. We are the special object of his affection and redemption. That's why Jesus became a man. Why did Jesus have to become a man? Because the Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there is no redemption, there is no forgiveness of sin. So in order for any of us to be forgiven, there has to be the shedding of God's perfect blood on the cross. That's why God became a man. He took on flesh. He also conquered our other need of eternal life that we lost in the garden by being resurrected from the grave in bodily form. So that therefore we could live forever as He originally designed us to live. And so there is a beautiful picture how God became a man and the gospel itself, the the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is uniquely tied not to angels and not to the animals. It's uniquely tied to who? To mankind. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's God's design. Now let me share with you my last point and we're going to get out of here. Here's my question for you. There really are only two kinds of people in this world. Miss Claudia hands out a little book all the time. The two kinds of people, don't you, Miss Claudia? Definitively for every There really are only two kinds of people in this world. I can say that definitively for every person in this room, every person in this county, every person in this nation, and on the face of this planet, you are either in Adam, or you're in who? Or you're in Christ. There's no in-between. You see, either we continue to bear the image of Adam, and listen, if we are in Adam today, we will bear his image until we die, because we will die in our sins, and we are cut off from God, we are still condemned under the curse that God placed on Adam and all of his descendants after him, or we will receive the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ as a new creation in Christ, and be able to be called the sons of God. That's why Jesus makes a direct connection with Adam. That's why Paul, the apostle Paul, he makes a direct connection between Jesus and Adam. He said Adam was the first what? He was the first man. And Jesus is the second Adam. What Paul is doing, he's saying either you're still in Adam, the first man, as a descendant of Adam, or you've been given the right to be called a child or son of the living God through faith in Jesus Christ our Lord. And so, guys, you go and read 1 Corinthians 15. It is a fascinating passage that does a great job about giving us some context for whether or not you're in Adam or Christ. But as our worship team comes up, I'm going to give you a couple of things to follow up on. Are you in Adam? Who are you in Christ? In Adam, there is still death, in Christ, there is life can't really see that very well, but Adam and Jesus is is, is split apart there. As you see, in Adam, we are still in death. We're still in our sins. We're still under the law. We're still under condemnation. We're still in our flesh. We're still slaves to sin and the devil, and we're in bondage. We don't want to be in what? In Adam. If you're in Jesus Christ, you have life. You've been given his sonship. You've been given grace and justification. You've been given the spirit of God. You've been given the adoption of sonship, and you have freedom. Now guys, I don't know where you are today, but I know that you're either in one of these two people. And some of you right now, you've been sitting out here for weeks and months and possibly years, and you're still in Adam. You've never truly received the gift of eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. I would be so naive to believe that every single person in an audience this big is in Christ. So some of you may be sitting out there today and you may be embarrassed to say, I've been in church for so long and I'm unwilling to admit that I've never been born again. I've never received salvation through Jesus Christ. Some of you may be sitting out there thinking, you know what, if I were to die today, I know that my sins are not covered. I've not been forgiven. I've not been restored unto God through faith in Jesus Christ. Listen, guys, at the end of the day, nothing else matters. I can say that with all of my heart. At the end of the day, at the end of your life and the end of my life, the only thing that matters is are you still in Adam, condemned under the curse, and you're going to have to face God and you're going to have to take that punishment on your own, or are you in Jesus Christ, covered by the blood of Christ, saved by the grace of God? It's one or the other. And so as we sing this morning and we finish this whole message out, I want to really challenge you to consider where you are. And if you need to come talk to me, if you need to come talk to one of our elders, we're always here, we're always available, but I don't want you to leave without making sure that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. It would do me no greater joy than to know that today was the day of your salvation. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you. I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for your gift of salvation that we son i want to pray for everyone in here today lord i know that we touched on some sensitive topics and i'm just tired of it lord i'm tired of the insanity come what may god help us to remain to to be bold i know that we have a responsibility to be loving and kind but the greatest act of love that we can do is tell somebody the truth is to share the gospel, is to, is to proclaim the authority of the word of God. Lord, I don't know how much more loving we can be. We, love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. And Lord, we, we've, been, we've been standing idly by and rejoicing in wrongdoing for way too long. And Lord, as the church, help us to be truly loving, to be truly burdened for those around us more than anything God for their salvation for people's identity Lord not to be in how old we are how rich we are what our sexuality is none of that stuff Lord but our identity is meant to be in Christ and in Christ alone and so as we sing God I just pray that you would work and do and move according to each person's need this morning in Jesus name amen would you stand with me as we